You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with weakness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, go ahead, take your seats. If I haven't met you, my name is Josh. On behalf of the staff and leadership of Praxis, we're glad that you're here. Um, Yeah, look forward to getting to know you. We've been working through the book of James. If you came in and didn't get one of these and don't already have one, and you want one, I would recommend having one. You can put your hand up. Someone will run one out to you here in a second. Um, So right in the back, Colin. We've got this workbook to go along with the series as we go through. It's got some great resources, midweek questions, stuff for community groups, that sort of thing. We've been working through James. James is the little brother of Jesus who came to worship his big brother, Jesus, after he saw him crucified and come back from death. The bulk of the letter up until now has dealt largely with the subject of trials. Trials. This is something every single person in the world is going to face. You're going to face trials, but Christians have unique hope in the middle of this because we serve a God who's all-knowing, so he knew this trial was going to come. He's all-powerful. He could have stopped this, but Romans says that he actually works all things, including our trials, together to accomplish his purposes. Trials are essential in the life of a Christian, but they're rarely enjoyable, are they? (laughs) They're often not very enjoyable. They, they tend to shake us, do things to us. They're accomplishing God's purposes, but, but in the middle of that, sometimes they bring out a lot of junk. A lot of junk. Uh, our tendency often in the middle of trials to blame our situations when this stuff comes out. They made me do that, but they took my thing, but they did this to me. It's, it's helpful to notice that Everything that comes out of us was in us. The glass can only spill what it contains. Something else might be sent by God to shake the glass up, but what spills out was in us. And in our trials, God is trying to accomplish stuff in us. Last week, Colin talked through, um, the, working through chapter one, was talking about how these things that come out of us, they're sin. This is a different way of looking at, at the world, really. The Bible says that sin isn't just something that happens to us. It's not things that we do that we shouldn't. It's not just things that we don't do that we should. At our very core, we've become sinful. 
Now, this pushes back up against modern psychotherapy that says, you know, we're good, we're whole, we're perfect at the core, we're born immaculate, and then things happen to us, or we've got some chemical offset in our brain that we need, like, a prescription to fix, and then we'll be perfect again. The Bible says, at our core, we're jacked up. The late, great R.C. Sproul, he said this, sin is having the desire in our hearts to do the will of the enemy of God. And we all have that. We all have that. We're born in this. Ephesians 2 says that we were born dead in the trespasses of our sins. Dead. Dead men don't do much. <laughs> I, th I don't think they do much here in Kelowna. They don't where I come from. Ephesians 2 goes on to say that it's by grace we've been saved through faith, and it's not our own doing. It's a result of his work. So, to pick it up in James if you don't have your Bibles, grab them. Where we left off last week, James echoes this very same idea in verse 18, which is where Colin left off. It says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits. It's his will that did this. Actually, lots and lots of great theology, theology just in verse 18. It, it says how he made us alive. He made us alive by his own will, by putting his word in us. It says, of his own will he brought us forth by the word. But what did he, and it tells us why he brought us forth as well. It says that he did this so that we could be a kind of first fruits. Now, that's a word that kind of, it, it refers to this idea of an a initial payoff on an investment in an agricultural society. This is your fruits bearing some some evidence of the fact that they're actually growing. It's that first bit of fruit, and you're like, phew, my crops are going to produce. Throughout the New Testament, we see, I think what James is getting at here is he's, he's riffing off what Jesus would talk about. God planted a seed. and Sometimes he uses this analogy. In Matthew, notably, I think it's um, 13, he talks about a seed being deposited. The kingdom has come, and it's growing, and it's going to overtake everything. That kingdom's begun and it will continue to increase. And, and you and I are to be that first fruit evidence of the fact that the kingdom's begun. Our lives should testify to this. But if you are like me, there's instance, there's moments where you can look back and all you can see is your sin, your shortcomings, your failings. And you wonder, has the kingdom of God begun in me? Is this even really there? Am I just faking it? Has this just been a sham? Something I do? You see your sin, that core desire, and you wonder, am I really saved? Am I made alive, or am I still dead in my trespasses? If you haven't grabbed your Bible yet, please do. Um, I want to I open us in a word of prayer while you do that. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the, um, one of the wine barrels in the back. That's our gift to you if you don't own one, or feel free to use it today. But um, join me in prayer. Father, I pray as we open the word and, and, and examine what you've preserved, what you've spoken by the Holy Spirit and preserved by the Holy Spirit for us that you would come and challenge us, encourage us, grow us, minister to us, transform our thinking so that our lives could be transformed. We need your word. We need you, Holy Spirit, to come and ignite it into flames in our heart. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, about 10 years ago, I had 
the pleasure. I made a documentary in Thailand with my best friend. We got to go there and all day long we would be roaming around making this documentary. It was fantastic. And then at night we'd go explore. And we'd go out into different markets and kind of just get lost in the city and then find a tuk-tuk to bring us home um, to our hotel. But we found this really fun market where you could buy knockoffs. Knockoffs of really anything you wanted. Clothes, but we kept coming back to this watch stand. And you could buy convincingly real like watches. I think that they were made there. Some of these, you could not tell the difference. They were heavy. They, they had amazing gears and extra dials and like rivets and bevels and you could turn them over and on the back there's a glass back and you could see the gears working inside of the watch. Looked incredibly legit. So eventually we bought a watch. We each bought a watch, walking around with it, feeling amazing. Like I got this total baller watch on until the day I, I sat down at the pool at our hotel and water seeped into it and it ceased to work. Now, it said it was waterproof. They told me it was waterproof. It was the more expensive one that they said would be waterproof, but it wasn't. Now, I, I still wore it around for a while because I thought this thing was so cool until my friend was like, why are you wearing this watch that doesn't work? And I had to come to terms. I just really like how I look wearing it. For some, I think our faith feels like this $4 cheap wash I bought in Thailand. You're excited about it. It's something you've been wearing around for a long time, but you're wondering if it really works, or maybe it has broken down. For others, you know, maybe you feel a bit like an imposter, and you're worried that if someone takes a close enough look at this watch, they're going to find out it doesn't work. It's not real. It's just a pretend piece of fashion jewelry you've been wearing around. You might feel this way about your faith. James is going to open, I think, with a practical explanation that if you were like me, um, might hit home. Might hit home. We're going to read in verse 19 to begin with. He says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, there's some weeks, you know, when you preach things and you're just like, really? You deal with the text and I'm like, oh, this week, I mean, I have not nailed this. I've not knocked this one out of the park. Um, but it's good. A good way to actually read texts here um, is as you, James or any text, circle the, the imperative, circle the verbs, circle the action items, the commands, the calls to action as you go through them. Because there is, there's, there's a lot of commands that we see in the text. Many people outside of the faith will often think Christianity is just a list of rules. Those inside the faith sometimes forget that the Bible does have commands in it. Any, anyone want to take a shot in the dark? How many commands do you think there are? And let's just stick to the New Testament. Anyone? There's more than just love your neighbor as yourself. Um, spoiler alert, there's 1,050 in the New Testament. In this text alone, these eight verses we're working through, I counted 10 imperatives. So in your community groups this week, try to find them. There's a lot here, but um, I counted 10. Um, verse 19 opens this way. He says, 
know this. I actually like how the New American Standard Bible translates this. It says, you know this. And then he goes on to, to give a couple imperatives. He gives three. Three commands. And he says, you know this, because they would have been very familiar with these. He says, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. You know these things. They know it because it's all through the Old Testament. It's all through the wisdom literature. It's talked about a lot in the Bible, these three things. So I'm going to put up some scriptures that I think he's pointing back to. There's dozens and dozens and dozens that I could have put up. But just to show you, when he's saying, you know this, I think he's probably pointing back to something like Proverbs 18, which says, if someone gives an answer before he hears, it's to his folly and shame. We're, we're to be quick to listen to what has been said. And I mean, you don't even need to be a Christian to believe this. Epictetus, the famous Stoic philosopher, he said, we've been given two ears and one mouth because we're to listen twice as much as we speak. But men, we tend to not be great at this. If, if you're married, your wife has probably pointed out instances where you know, you're not really listening the, the sound waves are coming in, but it's not really registering on your brain. Any wives? Amen that? Mine's been quiet, thank you. But women, hey, I believe in equal opportunity. This is something you can be guilty of as well. Some of you, it's not the problem that forgetting you have two ears, it's thinking you have two mouths. But we all do this. We all do this. How many arguments, how many fights would be resolved if we actually just paused and listened? This is, this is what he's getting at. We know this, but we don't do it. James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak. Another verse I think he's pointing back to, Proverbs 29, 20. Do you see a man who speaks in haste quickly? There's more hope for a fool than for him. He's saying, don't just wait for your turn with the talking stick. Pause, listen, it's not just about yakking. Quick to hear, slow to speak, and there's a connection, and that, that can actually help us grow less quick to anger. So Proverbs 16.32 says, He who's slow to anger is better than a warrior. He who controls his temper is greater than one who captures a city. And all of this is important because James's big brother Jesus said that, I tell you, men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they've spoken, every action we've performed, we will give an account for. So this instruction from him as he opens the letter is important, and it's probably not news to any of us. None of us are going, oh, I shouldn't get angry. We know this, but we fail at it. We know yelling doesn't fix the situation. Arguing with the rude person just gives them more opportunity to get rude. Getting angry at car problems doesn't fix the car. Or I'd be a car mechanic. Honking your horn doesn't make traffic move faster on Harvey. I've tried it. I know these three commands, but I have an embarrassingly long list of situations that I can think back on where I have radically stunk it up. We know a lot. But more often than not, it doesn't trickle down from what we know into our actions. And as we read on here, in verse 22, James says this, we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. There is more to the Christian life than just knowing. 
There's more to the Christian life than just knowing. We need to do as well. The difference between the $4 Rolex you can buy in Thailand and the $40,000 version here is that one works. It works, and it's vital that our faith works as well. Matthew 7, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, it's a judgment day, you die or Jesus comes back and you stand in front of him, and God says, why should I let you into my kingdom? The ones who say, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons, do all these great things, plant churches, start Bible studies, do missions trips? I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, but it hasn't trickled down to actually what you do. There's many who show up to church every week, sit on pews or folding chairs, know the silly Christianese language. You can, some can even quote Bible verses, but doesn't mean their faith is real. John 14 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. First John, Jesus, or John said, um, whoever says I know him but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth isn't in him. If we think we know the truth and it doesn't manifest as obedience, the Bible actually says that we don't know him. As Keith Green said, going to church makes us a Christian as much as going to McDonald's makes us a happy meal. There's more to Christianity than just knowing things. Verse 19, you know these things, he says. You know these things. So verse 21, therefore, in light of this, in response to this, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Therefore, since you know these things, do something with it, he's saying. And he tells us to do two things in verse 21. The first, to put away. The second, to receive. So what do you do in light of the fact that you know these things, you want them to become action? Put some things away that you might receive something else. So what does he tell us to put away? The old way. It's kind of like that furniture you dragged out of some back alley in college and brought home. Put that away. Make some room in the living room so the new stuff can come. The ESV, or pardon me, the NLT words it this way. It says, get rid of all the filth and evil in your life. Put it away. The King James Version, if anyone's still reading that, it says, wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Which is why we're reading the ESV, which says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. What he's instructing us to do is, acknowledge the areas of our lives, just acknowledge them that aren't matching up with what it is we say we believe. Acknowledge them. Acknowledge where sin's been allowed to roam unhinged, unrestrained. One of the, the biggest hurdles to doing this today is even just identifying that we're sinful. Because we want to deny it. Philosophically, culturally, we don't believe there's anything wrong with us. We're victims. Anything wrong with us is a result of our circumstances and what other people have done to us. That's counter to the Bible. If you believe it's true, if you believe that at our core we're sinful, as Colin greatly unpacked last week, 
then identify it. Identify it. Quit making excuses. Some are like, that's part of my personality. I'm an ENTJ. Did the personality test. I'm an ISTJ. Maybe you're a J-E-R-K, and you're just failing to acknowledge it. I have a behavioral disorder. Maybe, but you're still a sinner, and there's still sin that you need to identify. Quit accommodating sin and kill it. Is there any, just take a sec, take a beat, is there anything in your life that you might have been accommodating? You might be accommodating right now. Is there an area where sin has been allowed to run rampant? Somewhere where we know what we should be doing, but we're not doing it. And maybe we're even just going, oh, it's all grace anyway. Put it away, he says. Put away all filthiness and rampantness so that you can receive with meekness. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. It's what we receive that's actually able to save us. As we make space, the thing that comes in is what's actually going to transform us, what's actually going to save us. And notice what he says it is. The word. Now, if you take back, we talked about this verse 18 just briefly. Verse 18 says this too. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word. We're saved by the word, is what it's saying. But we're sanctified by the word as well. The word gets into us, it grows, and it produces a fruit in us. The way we become first fruits is by the word getting into us, but we need to do something with it. Now, I want to pause for a sec, um, because culturally, often we push back against this idea of learning more. It, sometimes it gets equivocated with being a Pharisee. Oh, they're Pharisaical, they know so much. Sometimes we, we make these false dichotomies of word people and spirit people. Anyone ever heard that? It's unfortunate because it's just not true. The, the one who spoke the word was the spirit. The one who empowered the understanding of the word is the spirit. There's a not a false dichotomy here. And, and you don't grow to maturity just by working yourself into a lather in some worship experience. Todd Bentley slaying you in the spirit does not produce maturity in you. Todd White stretching your leg does not make you a mature Christian. It's through the word getting into us. And as it gets in, it does something. It's, it is to do something. Verse 22 says, be doers of the word and not hearers. Romans 12, 2 says this, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And the way our mind is transformed is through the word getting in and challenging our notions. If it doesn't get in, we will not grow to maturity. There is no danger in knowing too much. There is, there is a danger, though, in doing too little with what we know. You, you could have heard all the truths in the Bible. You could have read through it many times. You could have the Bible memorized. You could be the reigning Bibleopoly champ. You could know how to argue theological perspectives against other theological perspectives. You could know how to parse your Greek participles. But if what you have stored away isn't unpacking downstairs, it's in vain. You might sound like you're far along, 
or if you don't live it, the problem isn't that you're deceiving others. James says the problem is, is that you're actually deceiving yourself. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Deceiving yourself. It's to be like somebody saying, I'm a farmer. I buy seed and I put it in my hoppers. But he doesn't plant it. He doesn't cultivate it. He doesn't water it. He's not a farmer. He's just some large dude who rides around in a tractor. There is, there's more to the Christian faith than knowing things. We need to do something with it. Now, some of us, we have turned the scriptures even into something that we study intently, but not things that we obey. We need to study, but we need to obey as well. Some of us have turned Jesus into someone that we know all sorts of things about. We study him, but he's not someone we're becoming more like. There's some who have deceived themselves into believing because they show up here or to any other church on a Sunday, pop some hill song on in the car, read their Bible before they go to work in the morning, that, that they're, they're somewhere that they're not, that there's something that they're not. You can take in all the Christian content in the world and not be saved. You can have a cross tattooed on your neck. You can take your family to vacation to Bible land and not be a believer. You can pray before every meal and not actually be saved. There are some here who might be deceiving themselves in, with regards to whether or not they're in fact saved. Actually, if you go to the right, James 2 says that in 2.17, faith by itself, if it doesn't produce works, is dead. Some people's faith is like my tie watch. And we need to ask ourselves and just be real, am I deceiving myself? Is there something that I know Jesus has commanded that I'm just blatantly disregarding? Maybe you, you really like Jesus' teachings on sexuality. Uh, but you completely ignore with what he has to say about serving those less fortunate. Maybe you really like Jesus' teachings on social justice, but you completely disregard with what, he, what he says with regards to how we honor God with our sexuality. Maybe you love the teachings of grace and forgiveness, but you disregard what Jesus says about marriage, divorce, and your wedding vows. Maybe you think Jesus has some really powerful things to say with regards to love, but you are completely ignoring what he has to say with regards to how you honor him with the money he's entrusted to you. For most people, the final frontier of discipleship is this. It's sexuality and money. The two things we don't want to give up. We want Savior Jesus, but we don't want Lord Jesus. You can come and save me, okay, but I've got the Lordship piece under control. I don't want someone who has the right to demand things of me. That's a role I'm reserving for myself. Some of us are following a made-up Jesus, a counterfeit version that we've made up that costs nothing, but the real Jesus costs everything, and the real Jesus affects everything. It changes everything. And so we need to ask ourselves, how do we keep ourselves from falling into this trap? Because this, this is a very real danger for all of us, that we deceive ourselves. 
How do we keep ourselves from following a made-up Jesus in our mind? How do we keep our faith from being some cheap, counterfeit version of the real thing? How do we hear and do? Verse 22, 25, read with me. James goes on to say, Be doers, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed. The gospel is meant to transform us, and James is now telling us how we become doers and not hearers only. And he's going to use the imagery of two mirrors in order to do this. Two mirrors. So keep that in mind as we read this. It will be helpful. The first, he's going to tell us how we can actually become a hearer who doesn't do. So he'll, he'll tell us. He says right here in verse 23, for anyone who's a hearer and not a doer, here's how you do it. He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what, forgets what he was like. Now, he's being funny. He's using a funny analogy, a ridiculous example. If I looked in the mirror and you said to me, hey, Josh, what do you look like? And I said, well, I'm clean shaven. I have petite features and a small head. You would go, I don't think you saw yourself. Now, some of us, though, are this way when it comes to our spirituality. We have a really false perception of who we are. We look in the mirror and we forget what we look like. Now, helpful to know, this first mirror that we look into is the law of God. The hearer looks into this, this mirror, the law of God, and they forget what they look like. And, and, and notice, too, this is not talking about people outside of the church. One, this letter is written to Christians. Two, it describes someone who looks intently into that mirror. This is somebody who's seriously pondered this. They might be spending every morning before work reading it. They're intently looking at it. They read it. They're listening to midweek sermons. But they're not doing it. This first mirror, it, it's this irrefutable, holy, immutable law of God. If you want um, a really fun, super nerdy study this week, you can go Google uses of the law. This is like kind of some mid-level theology. Um, Luther wrote a lot on this, like what is the law good for? I've got, I've got it up on the screen. I've tried to simplify it as much as possible. The law of God is meant to do a couple things. One, it's meant to declare God's holy standard. It's to show us the standard God requires. Secondly, it's meant to expose our sin. So when we look at it, we go, whew, wow, that is not me. I'm not seeing me in the mirror. The third thing is it's actually meant to bring us to a place where we recognize our inability to do it. The, the mirror is meant to show us that we have desires and behaviors that are opposite God's. The law shows us what is sin. It tells us the consequences of it. And it's meant to expose and convict us. It's meant to bring us to a place where we get on our knees and go, help, I can't pull it off. When Christians look into the law, 
They see their sinfulness, God's holiness, and their inability, and then they walk away and do whatever they want. James is saying they're like someone who looks in the mirror, sees jam from breakfast all over, and goes, eh, and walks away. If you're in a community group this week, I'd encourage you, CG leaders, to read through Romans 7, Romans 8. It's going to juxtapose the two mirrors we're talking about. Romans 7 is all about this first mirror and how when we look in it, we recognize our inability. Romans 7, a couple, oh, I actually don't have these up on the screen. Romans 7, 18, um, Paul talks about how the law revealed to him that nothing good dwells in him in his flesh. He says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Second thing, Paul says, Romans 7, 24, in light of this, he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And this is the right response. When we see our sinfulness, it should drive us to despair. It shouldn't make us try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. It shouldn't be like, it, it should crush us. A.W. Pink, fantastic commentator, he says this, it's not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it which distinguishes the child of God from empty professors. The right response of a child of God is they see themselves in the mirror and they despair. They grieve over their sin. But the hearer, he looks and he forgets and he walks away. He ignores the sin that the law exposes. Now this, this might sound hopeless, and it is until you actually take a look at where Romans 8 um, goes. Romans 8, Paul opens this way. He says, there is therefore, though, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Jesus from the law of the sin and death. So this old law, the law of sin and death, we're no longer under that. We're under the law, Paul says, of life for God has done with that old law who us weakened in our flesh could not do he sent his son in the likeness of flesh for sin he condemned sin in the flesh now listen to this verse 4 in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us Jesus came, took care of that for us. So when we look in the mirror now and we see that crushedness, we actually need to remember this. There's a new law. There's a second mirror we need to take a look in. The law of life. Now, if you actually bounce back over to James with me, James 1, he talks about this in verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For the ang or Oh, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. That's the law of sin and death. That's our natural face. We see it. He looks at himself and goes away, but at once forgets what he was like. But then, listen to this, the one who looks into the perfect law, the new law, the law of life, Paul talked about what James describes as the law of liberty, law of liberty, when we see that, when we persevere, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, we will be blessed in our doing. James is saying this, Jesus fulfilled the law, he did that for us. If we're in Christ, we're no longer bound by the old law. If we're Christ's, then we operate under a different law. We under, uh, operate under a different power. We, we couldn't keep the, the, 
the law by our flesh strength. Now Jesus has come down and freed us to a new law that empowered by the Holy Spirit we're actually able to keep. So the law of sin and death, we'll compare these. The law of sin and death declared God's holy standard, exposed our sin, revealed our inability. The second mirror, the law of liberty, reveals Jesus' perfection. He fulfilled the law for us. It proclaims our forgiveness and it empowers our obedience. The Holy Spirit actually comes and lives in us and enables us to obey the law. This is Romans 7 and Romans 8 contrasted. This is what James is getting at. To be a hearer is to ignore the greatest news in the world. It's, it's to fail to look into the second mirror. To be a hearer only is to look into the first mirror and say, I could never do that, and forget to look in the mirror and say, Jesus has done that. And it's precisely because Jesus has fulfilled that law that we are now able, by the Holy Spirit, who he sent to dwell within us, to obey the law ourselves. So now we can, by the Spirit's power, obey the law. And this is why the New Testament commands us, put to death the deeds of your flesh. Go and sin no more. Flee our sin, because by the works of Jesus and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we can. Now, I'm ruffling feathers, because some are going, well, we're never not going to be sinful. No, we will never not have sin. John talks about that. He says, if anyone says he has no sin, he's a liar. But the sin that is bogging you down, tearing you apart today, that you are hiding in secret because you're ashamed of telling, that you're weary of fighting, this second year promises us that it won't be the same sin five years, ten years from now, the day you go to glory, that you'll still be fighting. That as we fight, as we put forth effort, the Holy Spirit is there unpacking heaps more. Fighting for us. We can. And this is why he closes by saying, if anyone thinks he's religious, so actually a worshiper of God, and does not bridle his tongue, he's deceiving his heart and your, this person's religion is worthless. If what you know, these three things that we know don't unpack, our religion's worthless. Either we're not fighting or we don't have the Holy Spirit because the second mirror promises us that we will have victory over it. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What he's saying? True religion acts. And this idea is going to come up a lot as we work through James this fall. Real faith acts. Real fruit produces seed. If the, the seed, the real word has gotten into us, it will produce a harvest in us. If we, if we say we believe this word, then we need to do it. And if we say we believe this and it's not happening in our lives, perhaps we're not doing anything, or perhaps we don't actually have the Holy Spirit. Perhaps we're not actually saved. You take a Mentos and you drop it into a Coke. It explodes in foam. If, if you claim to be a believer and you drop this Mentos into the Coke and it's not fizzing, there's, there's something you don't have. You don't have a real Mentos. 
come out of a mothball. Learned that lesson. Don't eat mothballs. You might not have the Holy Spirit. If there's no effects in your life, you might not have the Holy Spirit. And so I want to close with this. I want to close with a call to action for all of us to look into this first mirror, recognize your sinfulness, recognize your inability to keep the law, and recognize our inability to save ourselves. We can't pull it off. If you're not a Christian, I pray that you would see your sin and feel crushed by it. But I pray that you would then look in the second mirror and see how Jesus has gloriously stood in your place and there's forgiveness available to you. If you would identify as a Christian while blatantly disregarding the Bible's commands, if you're failing to see obedience in your life, I want to call you to two things as well. I want to call you to recognize your sinfulness, and I want to call you to call out to Jesus for saving. If you're a Christian here, um, then as you see your sinfulness, which the Lord will graciously show you through trials, He will send situations to shake you so that all of this comes out. As that happens, I want to encourage you to look into the second mirror and remember that Jesus has fulfilled the law that you never could. It's the law of liberty. Look into that mirror. See who you now are in Christ. When you see Christ in the mirror, remember that that is who God sees when he looks at you. He sees Christ. And rejoice, because if you are Christ's, the sin that you are wrestling today will not be the sin that you're wrestling five years or ten years now from now by God's grace. Anger, lust, greed, laziness, gluttony, envy, pride, all of these things we're called to put to death and by the Spirit's power we can. We do not serve the old law anymore. We serve the new praxis. We are the first fruit evidence. We are. He is at work in his people. He is going to renew his people. He is going to sanctify his people, and he will conform us to the image of Christ. That's the promise we have. Hear that and believe it. Believe the word and go and do it.